previously on Let's Find Out. Hilarious difficulty researching my, my research paper question for one of my classes. One person <laughs> who remembers what happened after the designation. This forms snow squalls. This forms 19 pages long. This forms unanswerable research question. And now, the conclusion. Chris Chang and Phillips, and this is Let's Find Out, a podcast about becoming a historian, learning about local history, based in Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi, Wiskayagon, on Treaty 6 territory. Let's Find Out is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. I'm going solo on this episode. Long story short, it's because I have great news. Last episode, I was banging my head against the wall trying to get permission from the U of A's research ethics office to interview some humans. The humans I was trying to interview were folks who had worked with Parks Canada and Yoho National Park, now and in the 80s, about the British Shale fossil beds. Well, I got approval. I interviewed the humans. Um, I'm happy to report I was able to use this information that these Parks Canada folks shared with me for a talk at an online conference this March, run by our History, Classics, and Religion Graduate Students Association at the U of A. So on this episode, I'm going to share that talk. Uh, a couple times in this talk, I refer to photos and maps. I'll post my whole slideshow on the Let's Find Out website so you can see what I'm talking about. There are going to be tons of links on the website for this episode too, and old newspaper articles and reports and stuff. The theme for our conference was recovery, promises and pitfalls. And I got to thinking about how we kind of take for granted parks as places for city dwellers to go and seek restoration, be replenished with nature. And my thesis research is all about revealing some of the very specific choices made around the fossils in Yoho National Park that have shaped it into this very particular thing we think of as a wilderness today. The talk is called Making Space for Fossils, How the Burgess Shale Claimed a Spot on the UNESCO World Heritage List. I was incredibly nervous before this talk, by the way. This was my first ever academic presentation outside of a classroom. I hope you find it interesting. But first, Let's Find Out is brought to you by the Well Endowed Podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation, hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonking, produced by Lisa Pruden. The Well Endowed Podcast explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds, and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. The latest episode is all about radical inclusion and disability rights. They dig into a new report on the status of rights of people living with disability in Alberta, really important lens for seeing how our community is serving the people who live here. Listen and subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Let's Find Out is also brought to you by Taproot Edmonton. If you're like me and you check your phone uh, pretty much as soon as you wake up, you might want to start your day with a tight, informative roundup of what's going on in Edmonton today. If that's you, check out The Pulse, Taproot's daily news briefing. The Pulse tells you what you need to know about Edmonton every weekday morning. You'll get short, informative updates about what's happening at City Hall, plus coverage of business, tech, food, the arts, and more. You also get a little bit of whimsy from features like A Moment in History and the weekly podcast pick. I love The Pulse. It's smart, it's to the point, it's well-researched, and it's free. Sign up today at taprootedmonton.ca slash pulse. That's taprootedmonton.ca slash pulse. Hope you're ready to talk about fossils. Um, my name is Chris. Um, today I'm talking about making space for fossils, how the Burgess Shale claimed a spot on the UNESCO World Heritage List. So this is me in the bad shorts and tights look uh, behind my husband in 2016 on the Mount Stephen trial by beds, uh, to be specific. And below us, 
down in the valley is the town of Field and the Kicking Horse River and CP Rail tracks. And underneath our feet are 500 million year old trilobite fossils, little arthropods with tons of little body segments that lived in the ocean waters here half a billion years ago. And it feels wrong to be stepping on these shattered chunks of shale on the mountainside, um, like stepping on stained glass windows in a 500 million year old cathedral. But we feel lucky because we've come here with some friends to Yoho National Park to breathe in the Rocky Mountains, to see fossils like these, some of the best preserved remains of soft-bodied invertebrates in the world. And we feel lucky because we've been told repeatedly we are at a UNESCO World Heritage Site and a national park, which means don't take any fossils home with you, don't wander up here without permission. One way you can get up here is by paying to join this kind of interpretive hike we're on. Another way is to be a paleontologist. And today this World Heritage Site is huge. It's expanded to encompass all of Yoho National Park here in BC, uh, Jasper, Banff, Kootenai, and three BC provincial parks. But back in 1980, this fossil bed, and one more on the other side of the river, became the first little nucleus of that World Heritage Site. And what I want to talk about today is how these fossil sites ended up on that list, what kind of information and evidence and argument were used to lobby for a spot, and how did it change this space? So when you think of the Bridge of Shale, think ancient and unusual. Indigenous presence in these mountains is old. Tunaha and Shushwap First Nations have both inhabited the land that became Yoho. There's a pretty brutal history of the BC Indian Reserve Commissioner in the 1880s cramming Tunaha people into reserves much farther south though, near Cranbrook and Invermere. The two Bridge of Shale spots we're going to be talking about today are in present-day Yoho National Park um, near Field here on the map. And the fossils capture a moment in life's history that we call the Cambrian Explosion. Multicellular life experimenting with all kinds of body plans, five eyes and circular mouths and sponges with lattice bodies and predators. And Modern scientific research started when Charles Doolittle Walcott from the Smithsonian Institution in Washington started digging here with his family and a lot of assistance in the early 1900s. So how did this World Heritage Site thing come about? Our modern Western ideas of parks and heritage both have their roots in 19th century Europe, in industrializing societies worried about losing touch with nature. Upper classes started advocating to protect rural homes and churches. They pushed for legislation to conserve monuments and buildings and to keep them as they looked at that moment. Archaeologists and conservation architects started driving international standards of cultural heritage authenticity. And not surprisingly, they pushed for professionals, experts like them, to be the ones deciding which heritage mattered. In the 1960s and 70s, across the Western world, there was concern about natural and cultural heritage and a flurry of legislation and policy to protect it. In her book, Uses of Heritage, Laura Jane Smith says there are a few different reasons, more leisure time, more cars, more middle and upper class mass consumption of heritage tourism, and more concerns about protecting the places that were attracting these tourists. So this culminated in 1972 with the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO. UNESCO member states were working together on a new World Heritage Convention intended to conserve national heritage in each of these nation states and also build a list of sites and monuments of outstanding universal value. Professional experts in art history and architecture and archaeology were written into the convention as the ones evaluating cultural heritage site nominations. And in a last minute scramble, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, or IUCN, which had a lot of the world's experts in earth sciences and pandas and butterflies, the IUCN was written in as the external organization to review natural heritage nominations and recommend them to the World Heritage Committee. Canada was one of the first countries to adopt the convention. 
And why is that? Well, from my understanding, um, political prestige, partly, um, trying to boost public awareness of our heritage, uh, the potential for tourist cash, and uh, perhaps a genuine desire to protect our heritage too. Um, there's also some diplomatic soft power to be gained from offering technical expertise and cash to countries in the global south, taking care of their own world heritage sites. The Canadian government decided to channel most of its world heritage responsibilities through Parks Canada. And this is a Privy Council document kind of talking about that in the 1970s. Um, Parks Canada staff would be in charge of picking sites to nominate to the list, taking care of them if they got onto it, and the budget for the World Heritage Convention duties, like paying into that international fund for sites in danger, would flow through Parks Canada too. Canada successfully nominated some of the first sites on the list, and by 1979, Dinosaur Provincial Park, Nahani National Park, and Lonzo Meadows had spots there beside Yellowstone and Ethiopian rock-hewn churches and the Giza pyramids in Egypt. And this is where we meet the man who seems to be the main character of the Burgess Shales nomination, Peter H. Bennett, Parks Canada's special advisor on the UNESCO World Heritage Convention. Basically, the head official who's running around Canada identifying sites and monuments to put on the list. Peter Bennett was the one who signed the Burgess Shale nomination package that Canada submitted to UNESCO in 1979, and he seems like a really interesting character. Um, a few years before this, he was the director of the uh, National Historic Sites Survey of Canada's old buildings, and I found this scathing critique of him um, from the BC Historical Association's newsletter in 1973 when he was in that role. They criticized him for laboring under the delusion that we here in the Pacific West have no historic buildings other than log cabins built in the gold rush days. It's a pity, they say, that none of us historically minded people was consulted when decisions were being made for us. This seems unfair to me. Um, it seems like Bennett uh, had a more mixed record of consulting with communities. Um, up in Haida Gwaii, for example, on the Skangwai Island World Heritage Site with its old cedar longhouses and big mortuary poles, he apparently worked together with a watchman program there and the Skidigate Band Council on the nomination. On the other hand, when Wood Buffalo Park in northern Alberta was designated in 1983, local Indigenous groups said they didn't even know it was being put on the World Heritage List, and the Federal Environment Minister was apparently so out of the loop that he approved more commercial logging in the park. We can also see some self-consciousness in which sites he helped nominate. Um, Parks Canada published a magazine called Conservation Canada, and in 1978, Bennett contributed an article about the World Heritage Convention. And in it, he says, Canada is, quote, unlikely to get many properties on the list. Of those that are accepted, most will likely be natural sites. The difficulty in nominating Canadian cultural sites is always likely to be justifying them as of outstanding universal value and not just of national significance. Maybe putting natural heritage front and center was also a way to send a message that Canada was a nation with a history just as ancient as all those old churches and pyramids. And the Burgess Shale nomination package certainly highlights how ancient these fossils are. It says, the Burgess Shale is an outcropping mass of rock, part of the Stephen formation of the Middle Cambrian age that is characterized by its profuse and unique fossil fauna. I love these fossils, all the weird, cool invertebrate bodies they show off. Um, it describes the Walcott Quarry as little disturbed by man, except for a hiking trail below and some rock debris that is scarcely distinguishable from the natural talus. It talks about the Mount Stephen trilobite beds too, the ones I hiked up. And it makes an argument that the British Shale fits two criteria for a natural heritage site on the list. First, under criterion one, it is a unique and superlative natural phenomenon, certainly one of the three most significant fossil localities in the world, and in some opinions, the most significant. These other significant fossil sites, the Old Valley Gorge in Tanzania and Dinosaur Provincial Park in Canada, embody fossils from a different geological age and fossil group. Second, under criterion two, it is a unique sample of a major stage in Earth's evolutionary history. 
This application mentions how the majority of the fossils found in the British Shale are soft-bodied, which is extremely rare and also found nowhere else in the world at the time, That's although further sites have been found since then. Under the box for state of preservation and conservation, it says, except for the quarry excavation itself, the immediate area of the British Shale is very nearly in its natural state. Inconspicuous foot trails provide access, and the campsite 800 feet below bears some scars of occupation. This is kind of the only hint that they offer, by the way, that lead and zinc mining happened near both these sites until the 50s, and there was commercial logging in the park till the 60s. Uh, this document makes an argument that this area already has strong protection, though, under the National Parks Act and regulations, and Parks Canada staff to enforce that. The bibliography and attachments are almost all scientific literature, journal articles written by paleontologists based on fossils from the Burgess Shale, studies about trilobites and annelid worms and Opabinia regalis and Morella splendens. The attachments have lots of strange and beautiful photos and illustrations of the fossils and what their seabed might have looked like 530-ish million years ago. So this argument is being supported by scientific research and by trust in Parks Canada's regulations and staff. I can't see any evidence that Bennett or other Parks Canada staff working on this consulted with, say, indigenous groups or locals in field or climbing and hiking and horseback riding groups who all really cherish these places too in this application. But the documentation they provided was basically a perfect fit for their audience, which incredibly was one Canadian living in Switzerland on, on loan from Parks Canada. So this is Hal Eidsvik. He was the one who received this package. Um, remember, UNESCO designated uh, delegated responsibility for reviewing World Heritage Site applications to the International Union on the Conservation of Nature, IUCN. And within the IUCN, that responsibility was delegated to Hal Eidsvik had been Parks Canada's chief of planning. He was actually involved with Canada's World Heritage nomination process, building that list of potential sites. And in the late 70s, he was loaned to the IUCN in Switzerland on an exchange program. He was interviewed about this for the Oral Archives of the World Heritage Convention, and this is what he had to say about that. It eventually came down to not IUCN, not the commission, but it came down to an individual. Everybody else was busy, they did their own stuff, they said, okay, your responsibility is the World Heritage Convention, so it was on my desk for three years. Hal certainly valued professional scientific expertise. Um, I got to email him about his memories of this time, and he said, the concept of world heritage was in an evolving state. For example, should a site such as the Burgess Shale be nominated? And if so, what about Pato Lake or Lake Louise areas with outstanding natural beauty right next door? Uh, or for that matter, the Canadian Rockies. In any event, the decision was taken to go forward with Burgess Shales. In 1979, he says, when the nomination arrived on my desk at IUCN, I began some inquiries to recognize fossil authorities about their views. At that time, we did not carry out field evaluations or proposals. As I recollect, I contacted the Canadian Museum of Natural History, Queen's University, the Dinosaur Museum in Drumheller, and the Smithsonian Institute in Washington. All of these responses supported the nomination. The Smithsonian said, and he's trying to stretch back here, there's no like written record of this, if there should be only one fossil site in the World Heritage List, this is it. So um, that was really cool to hear from Hal directly on that. Um, I think he must be mixing up the Royal Terrell Museum in Drumheller with some other institutions since it didn't exist yet. But speaking to the Canadian Museum of Natural History and Queen's University and the Smithsonian Institution, where Charles Walcott had been based, um, that makes sense. Um, and Hal made a positive recommendation. The World Heritage Committee accepted his recommendation in 1980, and in 1981, they held a formal dedication ceremony in Yoho National Park. This is actually a picture of Peter Bennett here at this ceremony. Um, and what changed on the ground? Well, 
Apparently the number of tourists increased almost immediately, and so did fossil theft. So if you consulted the Canadian Rockies Trail Guide before the designation in 1978 and you were looking for a day hike from field, you'd find a recommendation to see the Stephen fossil beds. The guide does mention that it's illegal to remove any of the fossils in a national park, but this isn't a backcountry hike, so there's no need to get a permit or anything. After the designation, though, Parks Canada staff started to feel like this open access wasn't tenable anymore. Uh, this is a Calgary Herald article from 1982 that mentions that, according to the chief warden, the number of visitors and potential thieves to the fossil beds has nearly doubled since the publicity that accompanied their designation as the United Nations World Heritage Site. We don't want to cut off the public from the fossil beds, the chief warden is quoted as saying here, but we are concerned about their protection. I spoke over the phone with Randall Robertson, um, who was a warden in Yoho National Park in the 80s. Um, he remembers visitors from Calgary, especially geologists, being drawn to the Burgess Shale on the weekends. Um, that went way up after the designation, and lots of people, he says, would walk up to the Mount Stephen beds and pocket some trilobites. According to Robertson, he was the one that told the chief warden and the superintendent in 1981 that it was time to close these areas permanently. Wardens could and did search visitors' backpacks for fossils, um, but Robertson told me that superintendents also didn't really want to put people off visiting and spending money in the park, and accosting hikers with lumpy bags in parking lots wasn't really a scene that anybody was happy with. So according to Robertson, he drew up maps of areas he thought should be restricted around the Walcott Quarry and the Stephen Fossil Beds got the superintendent to sign off on them and put up copies of the visitor center and the trailheads. And this is how we arrive at a system where, if you're a member of the public, you can only visit these sites with an interpreter from Parks Canada or the Burgess Shale Geoscience Foundation. Uh, for paleontologists, it doesn't seem that that much changed. Scientists already needed permission from Parks Canada to scout or remove fossils. Desmond Collins, one of the paleontologists from the Royal Ontario Museum, who was working in the British Shale around this time, he told the Calgary Herald that he was worried that the new designation might hamper exploration in the future. And it's true they weren't allowed to use dynamite when they asked, um, but the Royal Ontario Museum got permission to look for new sites and excavate new specimens throughout the 80s and 90s. They found some pretty extraordinary things, like the first complete fossil of an Anomalocaris canadensis, this really cool marine predator. Todd Keith is the current uh, Parks Canada land use manager for Yoho, Kootenai, and Lake Louise. And he says there are trade-offs to these site restrictions. Um, these are maps of the areas that are actually um, restricted now. Um, same maps as Randall Robertson made in the 80s. Um, so Todd Keith, that current land use manager, he says, um, these site restrictions, they put a burden on their staff to maintain the closures and communicate them to the public. He says it also does limit visitors' freedom to engage with this landscape on their own terms, but he says they're necessary because enforcement is so difficult for Parks Canada staff trying to prevent fossil theft. And he says that part of the scientific value of these fossils is that they're in a specific place in the rock. Literally, which layers are on top of what has scientific value and removing fossils destroys that context. He also told me that um, the, the experience that I had of being in awe of stepping all over these trilobite fossils is part of what they're trying to protect, too. Um, I've heard a Parks Canada interpreter and this land use manager, Todd Keith, tell me the same story about this fossil, Ovetiovermus crabatus, in defense of this system. Um, back in 2011, a visitor on one of the guided hikes picked up a rock and saw this tiny thumb-sized fossil, which kind of looked like a smushed shrimp, and the interpreter brought it down to the Parks Canada office and field. And at the end of the season, um, Todd Keith, that land use manager, showed it to Jean-Bernard Caron, a paleontologist from the Royal Ontario Museum. And Caron apparently was blown away because he had just submitted a paper describing a new species found in the Walcott Quarry of Vadiovermus crabatus from one specimen, and this would be the second. 
The moral of this story, I think, is if you come to Yoho, it might be a bummer you can't hike up to the fossil beds on your own, but you can still have a cool experience. And if you don't go rogue and you don't pocket what you find, you're embedded in this system of scientific expertise, and maybe you can contribute something to that conversation too. This is a video um, that the ROM made of this animal, what it might have looked like filter feeding in motion, which is just incredibly beautiful to me. Ovadi vermis, the name comes from like this, like worm doing an ovation, I guess, is the idea. From a scientific perspective, the World Heritage designation seems to have massively raised the profile of the British Shale. Books like Stephen Jay Gould's Wonderful Life in 1989 made the site and its fossils world famous. Royal Ontario Museum scientists have done decades more work collecting in Yoho and Kootenai Park near the Walcott Quarry and also finding other British Shale beds. In 1984, the World Heritage Site designation for these two little slopes expanded to encompass four national parks and now three more provincial parks to make up the Canadian Rocky Mountain Park site, which, according to author Bob Sanford, has been crucial to helping protect one of Canada's most important watersheds. Most sites on the World Heritage List are cultural sites or mixed sites. They're not natural heritage sites like this. Um, most natural, natural heritage sites are just much less common and places recognized for their geological or paleontology value are even more rare. Fossil beds around the world are under threat from construction, vandalism, industrial pressure. The fact that harvesting the British Shale fossils was regulated and that you can still see many of them in context on a hike is pretty extraordinary. According to Parks Canada, Tanaha and Shushwap First Nations are now involved in management planning for Yoho, though not specifically for the British Shale. I'm hoping to learn more about that over the next year. One final thought, the dichotomy that we often make between nature and culture, mainstream Canadian ideas of preservation, the natural state of landscapes, even expecting solitude in the mountains are not universal values. In their book, Inhabited, Philip and April Vanini make the argument that wildness isn't a property that a place has, it's a practice. It's an emergent outcome of activity, of performance, of inhabitation. In this place, wildness seems to be a performance of scientific research and tightly regulated interpretive hikes. Thanks for coming along to learn about how this model of wildness took shape. Thanks for listening. Let's Find Out is produced by Trevor Chow Fraser and me, Chris Chang and Phillips. By the way, this talk will probably end up being some chunk of my final thesis, and I might reuse this name. I like it so much. I have so, so many cool links and pictures and a video on our website. Let us know what you think of the episode. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Thanks to all the folks at the History, Classics, and Religion Graduate Student Association at the U of A for putting together this year's conference. This episode is a recording of my talk on March 25th, 2022. Thanks also to Randall Robertson, Todd Keith, Hal Eidsvik, Christina Cameron, Alessandro Balsamo, Lisa Piper, Ken Moray, Kyla Tichkowski, and many others for their help researching this paper. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting this podcast, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast is by the gloriously humble human being, Doug Hoyer. Until next time. Keep your questions coming.